Elias and Lorena's son David's bar mitzvah, so Elias is with his family getting ready for their big day, um, and we're all so excited to be celebrating with their family. Um, we are going to be thinking about a really interesting issue, what Colin Powell's first paragraph of his obituary says to all of us, and it's amazing how Hashem Karma Fate arranged Colin Powell's first sentence of his obituary, his worst moment uh, together with the rest of his life, in the week, the very week in Vaera that we read about Sarah's worst moment, and the very week that we read about Abraham's worst moment, and it's going to, I think, create a lot of great potential for conversation. So let's thank God for the gift of learning to our together. so Shabbat Shalom, folks. I want to start uh, just by reading the first paragraph of Colin Powell's obituary that was sent out in the Talmud teaser, because while you've read it before, it's very rich and extremely poignant, and to me, extremely sad and evocative, which in ways that repay real conversation. Um, Colin L. Powell, who in four decades of public life served as the nation's top soldier, diplomat, and national security advisor, and whose speech at the United Nations in 2003 helped pave the way for the United States to go to war in Iraq, died on Monday. He was 84. So there's a few things I want to draw out with that, dear colleague. First, the very structure of this sentence, it's one sentence, um, what you have here in, in effect, is an equation of 40 years of service as a soldier, diplomat, and national security advisor. 40 years. That feels very biblical, right? And then one really bad moment, his speech at the UN. We could talk about how that came to be anyway. He was so such a reluctant warrior on that and didn't, didn't support the war, didn't want the war, and just got drowned out by Rumsfeld and Cheney and a very new president. Um, uh, but, and he was doing his duty listening to a commander-in-chief, um, and 40 years, and one bad speech. Now, what I want to talk about, and then open up a conversation first, is how that drowns out other parts of his story. Like, if you think about it, in many ways, Colin Powell's biography heals some of the worst and most painful divides in our country, because he's an immigrant story. Um, and so here you have the son of immigrants. This is immigration working. This is immigrants get it done, and not just in the time of Alexander Hamilton. This is immigrants get it done, and he leads the Gulf War, and was super respected. And also, it's a racial healing story, because he came of age in the military when the American military was starting to get integrated, and because of his power and wisdom and charisma and strength and resilience, etc., he rises to become the top military official. So it's an immigrant healing story. It's a racial healing story. Um, and none of those healing stories get told. What gets told is his worst moment. So I wanted to just first offer this up to you guys for your reaction. Um, what, what you feel about it and what you think uh, we learned from it. 
I'm not sure who wrote this, but I'm thinking that the person who wrote this may have thought that the the speech to the UN was actually a good thing. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, it's maybe that maybe that's why it's it's there. I mean, we we are, we recognize it as something different, but maybe the person who wrote it thought, oh, you know, no, 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 that it's pretty uniform. First mm-hmm. of all, Colin Powell himself feared it. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty broadly recognized the war was a big disaster, and what and what's unequivocal wherever you stand, incontrovertible and indubitable, is that the war was justified on the basis of weapons of mass destruction, and all agree that the information contained in his report in his speech to the UN was false. Right, so thank you for that clarification. Uh, it is 100% agreed that the intelligence that he offered in support of making the case for the speech all turned out to be wrong. There were no weapons of mass destruction, um, and that was wrong and fallacious. Um, and so, uh, and the war itself was obviously a grievous mistake. Um, and so, um, and so, so what you have here is all this accomplishment and a, a speech based on bad information that led to a, a really bad decision of war. Um, so, Michelle, Lisa, what are you what are you working? Yeah, I mean, you brought up Hamilton there in your opening words, and I I think it really, in some way, proves the truth of that beautiful song that concludes. Hamilton, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Right. And you know, so much of what we do as as humans is actually, you know, not the story that we want to tell about ourselves, but stories that others will make of the pieces of our lives. And you had asked the question before we started class, is this inevitable or, or you know, can we kind of leave behind those things that, that we ourselves would not want to be front and centered. And I think probably the answer to that is is no. I think I think we actually can't leave behind these things because we're not the ones who tell our stories in the end. And if you look at many other, um, that's not the only obituary, right? There are many other obituaries that don't put that in the first line. And there's some sense in which if you live a life the way that Colin Powell did, in which you are a public servant and you are out there doing big things, there are going to be multiple voices telling your story in multiple different ways, some of which will want to highlight the things that they feel you did, um, you didn't get right, and some that will feel they want to only highlight the things that you did. you got to kind of let go of wanting to be in control of other people's narrative of your story. Um, you know, Thank you, Michelle. Elisa, you mentioned yesterday in our pre-conversation something I've been thinking about. Because, you know, Colin Powell has this complicated first line, 40 years and then his bad speech. And we're going to talk about Abraham and Sarah from our portion, but they have their most shameful moments are the moments that we read every year in Rosh Hashanah. So it's as if, it's as if, let's say there were a faith tradition based on Colin Powell and congregations and a sacred text and the big holiday. It would be like the Colin Powell faith tradition on the biggest day of the year, reads his U.N. speech, right? Because on Rosh Hashanah, we read, Gen- day one, we read Genesis 21, where Hagar casts out, where, where Sarah casts out Hagar, where Abraham accedes to it. And Genesis 22, we have Abraham binding his son for a birth offering and almost being able to do it, be ready to do it. Um, and so we read the U.N. speech of Abraham and Sarah every year on our highest holy day. And in our pre-conversation, Elisa, you pointed out that every week we do funerals for people who don't have this complicated first paragraph, um, that who don't have uh, their UN speech, who don't have the binding of Isaac, who don't have the expulsion of Hagar and Ishmael, 
Um, so could you say more about that and the translation from these cases to our lives? Yeah, so I think that there are, there are we see plenty of people who have um, uncomplicated, beautiful, sweet, simple stories that, you know, they were a, a family person, they loved their family, they, they did, you know, um, they were at every sports game and every soccer game, and, and that's their story. Um, and I think that there's a difference between um, being a leader and, and, as you were saying, Michelle, like stepping out into the world in big ways um, and taking big risks opens you up. And I think, as I've been sitting with the story this week, though, for me there's an element of, of scapegoating here because it's not as though that speech was the only instigator of that war. It's not as though that speech, I mean, there's so much that's put onto that speech. Um, and I have, I have real questions about why, why, why that speech and why not, why don't we all take responsibility in a bigger way? And why is it that he gets stuck with this first line on his obituary? And we're not actually taking, I mean, by saying that he got up and he gave this speech and he did, he, he was the reason that we, I think that gives away a lot of uh, the truth of the situation. Uh, he was a reluctant warrior, as you said. He, it wasn't as though he, he woke up that morning and said, you know, I have a really great idea. I think I should, that's not the situation. So I think we have here a really a complicated narrative, a complicated reality, a world that is still looking to scapegoat people and that uses people to scapegoat and people that are minorities and people who are um, newly gaining power in a, in a world that has been really racist and sexist and, and exclusionary. And so I'm sort of torn between those two worlds. On the one hand, I think having a simple, beautiful obituary sometimes means you, you, you lived a simple, beautiful, quiet, small life. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just it's a different world. So, Lisa and Michelle, I want to put your two comments together because, um, Michelle, you were talking about the difference between a public life where if you do public things, there are people who are going to disagree with you. That's inevitable. It happened to Moses. It happened to George Washington. It happened to Abraham Lincoln. Right? The, the, the greatest among us that you would say are the best, like Moses, best, George Washington, best, Abraham Lincoln, best, had people who hated their guts, right? Um, and so if you're in that level of aspiring to a public sphere, that's going to happen. And then you talk about, at least in the difference, uh, you know, doing in, you know, the, the, the quiet, ordinary lives are the ones that then was at all of our soccer games, okay? So here's my question. I, I was actually speaking to um, a, a wonderful friend of our community, uh, Bruce Spiler, this week, you know, the well-known author. His father, Ed Spiler, passed away last week and was laid to rest in Savannah, Georgia. And I was speaking with Bruce Spiler, and, of course, he's such a gifted writer and lyrical with words, and he says so much and so little. Um, he said his father's epitaph, as far as he's concerned, and his legacy, is my father was great and good. And he said it's, it's very easy for people to be great, but they're not good, and it's very easy for people to be good and not great, but his beloved father was great and good. Uh, and I'm wondering if you think that notion kind of fits in here, and if it's possible to be great and good and still end up with an uncomplicated first paragraph of your obituary. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about this a bit more also and thinking about um, what you were saying, Elisa, about how many times we come to funerals and, and uh, we hear about the quiet lives that people live. Uh, and then there are those other occasions where people will get up and say, you know, the relationship I had with so-and-so was very complicated and... Um, and I don't have much good to say, which I've actually heard sometimes at funerals. And the, the first time I heard that, it might have been like 10 or 12 years ago, 
I was also so taken aback by that because I never, you know, I, I live my life. If you don't have something good to say, don't say it. Um, and, um, and I'm just also thinking about when, when did it become acceptable for um, people writing uh, obituaries, et cetera, to, to be able to malign in certain ways, uh, you know, the people for whom the obituary, you know, is this something that's gone on forever and I just never paid attention? Uh, just more paying attention now. Um, and, uh, you know, what you were just saying about, um, you know, good and great, though I think that those people are rare, uh, but maybe more, uh, in some ways rare, but also maybe more common than we think. Can I just take issue with the malign piece of things? Because, you know, I think we're coming at this from one particular political perspective. There's another political perspective that would actually really admire that the power inherent in being able to sway a nation, the um, the way in which, you know, his voice became that, that final voice that showed that he really had integrity and people trusted him. We all know what happened in the end, but at the time, right, at the time he was lauded, it was, it, it, by, by some, right, that it was, it was a moment of, um, of, of great national trust in him. And I'm wondering whether, you know, some person who was writing that obituary didn't just mean, you know, he's, he's to blame, but might also mean, like, this was a reflection of the influence and the power to which he rose in our nation, that he was able to drive the conversation and was able to shift the sea at that time. Yeah. I, I, I want to just, um, before we pivot from Colin Powell to Abraham and Sarah and our own U.S. speech and our tradition, I want to ask what is the healthful, healthy and helpful move in learning from that sentence in his obituary? In other words, and I'll, I'll throw this out there, um, you know, one of my favorite columnists, my favorite columnist, is Brett Stevens of the Times. And he wrote a piece this week um, where, he, where he argues uh, that General Powell should have run for president in 1996. It's a very evocative piece. It was kind of a counterfactual piece, a counter-narrative piece. And the last sentence of it was, General Powell, you should have run in 96. Rest in peace. And Brett Stevens in that piece argues that in 96, Colin Powell was a Dwight Eisenhower type figure. When he had the afterglow of the very successful Gulf War of 91, uh, he was just broadly beloved by all people of all races, colors, and creeds in America. He, he was a Republican, so a lot of the Republican animus that we had with our actual first black president would have been muted because he was a Republican, etc. Um, and then, and, and he does this kind of counterfactual about how if he didn't, he was not a fan of the war. He did not like the war. He, he went he went with the war because his commander-in-chief wanted the war, and his commander-in-chief was influenced by Rumsfeld and Cheney, and Colin Powell was trying to put the brakes on and ended up, he, he thought he was going to be able to manage the war and be the general of the war, and in the end, the administration wanted him only to sell the war, and so he was really, he felt, he felt used, uh, Colin Powell felt used. And, and Brett Stevens in this piece this week says none of that would have happened. And we probably would not have gone to war because uh, Colin Powell was, was not a fan of the war if Colin Powell had run for president in 96. Here's my question. Does that kind of counterfactual thinking or counterfactual speculation you think you're now, does that feel helpful or not helpful? I don't understand what you mean by helpful. I was, is, it, is, it a worthy, is it a worthy mode? I'm trying to figure out how we learn 
from this story? And is that a worthy way of learning from the story? Simple question. I think so. I mean, I think that each piece of this is a piece of his story, and that narrative speaks to potential that he had and the and the potential like what what could have happened um, if he used his power in a, in a different way. Um, I think also part of this is also who's reading the story, and I'm I'm really struck by which newspaper is writing the article, which which people are reflecting on his memory and. Especially, you know, with our ancestors, I think we often have extra rosy-colored glasses, and especially our rabbis do, where they're looking at um, people's stories and explaining that what looks bad is really not bad at all. If you really understood what they were going for, She's you looking would, at me. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you so often bring that voice. But <laughs> so. if you deeply understood their hearts, you would see that, in fact... This heinous act is actually an act of beauty and compassion and love. Yes. So speaking of ways, so thank you for that, Elisa. So let's pivot uh, to our own United Nations thing, which is, I mean, it, I'll posit, and maybe Michelle, you'll have to get to read, that Sarah and Abraham have two UN moments, two moments that I think most reasonable people would say are horrid, horrid. Um, and, it's, and they're in our reading this week, Genesis 21 and Genesis 22, in Vayera, and... Um, and they are, again, highlighted on Rosh Hashanah. So for Jews who come to shul, you know, on Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, not much else. This is what you hear about Abraham and Sarah. I'll just read it. Um, uh, Sarah saw the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham playing. By the way, the backstory is Hagar was asked by Sarah to have relations with, uh, with Abraham, probably forced to, right? There was a power dynamic. You know, you will have sex with my husband. And the child that is born will be considered my child. Um, so Ishmael only exists because of Sarah, right? So Sarah saw the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham playing. She said to Abraham, cast out that slave woman and her son. For the son of that slave shall not share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Um, and we read that. That's Sarah. Um, that's her UN moment. And we read it not once, but twice a year. And most of the Jewish world reads it on the one day they come to shul. Uh, why? Why do the rabbis pick that? Right. I mean, to Elisa's point, the rabbis very much do not see that as her UN moment. If anything, it's Abraham's response that is a UN moment. When you think about the Colin Powell having given in, he really, in his gut, felt like it, it wasn't the right thing, but was convinced to come around to it, and he did something, and he wasn't happy with doing it, but he did it anyway. That's Abraham in this moment, because Sarah, right. you know, tells him to kick out his child. He doesn't like that right. so approach. Just, so, He's not so on the, board. The matter distressed Abraham greatly, for it concerned a son of his. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed over the boy or your slave. Whatever Sarah tells you, do as she says, for it is through Isaac that offspring shall be continued for you. Get on board with the war. As for the son of the slave woman, I'll make a nation of him too, for he is your seed. So, um, but that's just, okay, so you, but that's, I mean, most of us would hate this. We're, hate this. We're also missing part of the story, though, because yeah. there's an incident that precedes this moment, and you can, you know, it depends how you read it. If you read it that the boys were just playing, and Sarah was just unreasonably jealous, and or if you read it that she actually, you know, 
Abraham pimps her out, she pimps her guard out, and now she doesn't like the consequences, and she's angry, and she's resentful, and she's dealing with trauma and doesn't acknowledge it. But I want to put that aside for a moment, because I think for, for this moment, important for us to understand there's a reading that, that the, the mitzachet, the, the playing that they were doing, was not so playful. It was actually abusive. And she's being a protective mama bear, and she's like, this will not exist in my house. I, my child will not have to suffer through this. This is outside the realm of what is, is possible. Isn't that apologetics? Time out. Isn't that apologetics? There's no reasonable way that one would think that the shot is that Ishmael is abusing Isaac. There's no reasonable. That's not shot. That is rabbinic, exegesis, apologetic, on the defensive, trying to justify that which cannot be justified. Or it's possible that if you see Sarah as a vengeful, hateful, a terrible person who would just kick somebody out on their butt for no reason what? with no food and no support. That's one read, and that's a popular. But if you see her as a decent human being, if you see her as somebody who cares, then the only read the only one. Or can we, even can we just let her words speak for herself? Yeah. For the son of that slave shall not share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. No, I'm the opposite of woke. I hate woke. Hate woke. But just let the read the words read themselves. For the son of that slave woman. So it's like a lot of class stuff that's kind of very embarrassing and cringeworthy. And then it's about money. The son of that slave shall not share in the inheritance of my son. Or Isaac. it's about a spiritual so inheritance, which is that what... You're just being a rabbi. No, that's but, not but what the text says. The, the text says it's about money <laughs> and it's about class. Okay, but we always that's ask... What the text says. When, when Rashi comes in, for example, there's an entire book called What's Bothering Rashi, right? So what's bothering our rabbis here that makes them say, hold on a second, can we look again at what's going on? What's bothering is that God, God's self, comes in and says, Sarah's right. You've got to listen to Sarah. So there's got to be something more going on here. It can't just be that Sarah woke up one morning and decided, oh, my gosh, look, he's about, you know, uh, almost at the age where he could inherit some of my money, and I'm going to kick him out because I'm racist. Can I just say, Sarah at this point is very every inch an adult. She's you know she's an adult. So so therefore, when she says, I always think it's good to give adults the benefit of their own words. When she says, the son of that slave, you know, cast out that slave woman and her son, for the son of that slave shall not share in the inheritance of my son Isaac. I feel like it's it's good and right to actually respect what she says. No, I very much, I very, very, very much agree with what Eliza said about the immediate story before it, shedding a tremendous amount of light onto the the trauma that if that that Sarah is trying to process through all of this. Are you saying that if somebody is um, abused, that that justifies their abusing somebody down the line? Absolutely not. Okay, and, so. and that's and that's actually something that our tradition grapples with quite right. a, a, on Rosh Hashanah. Right. right. What? How do we make sense of Hagar and the place of Hagar in our spiritual legacy? We do that every year. So why? Which raises the question, and Dan would love your voice here. Um, why, of all the passages in our canon, does the Machzor select this super problematic? I mean, I'm not woke, and this offends me every year. Uh, why, why pick this super problematic text um, to, to, to highlight on Rosh Hashanah? Well, I, I, I'm thinking it's cautionary uh, in the sense that, um, you know, our ancestors, I was having a discussion with, with one of my B'nai Mitzvah about, about, about our ancestors, uh, and um, 
the fact that uh, they are in so many ways so human and maybe the Torah is teaching us these are also uh, ways that we should not act. Uh, you know, what Sarah does is a way that should not act. I mean, Av- Avraham giving in to God in a certain way, you know, he, you know, he, uh, look, Avraham is great with strangers. Um, I'll, you know, or, or his, or, or like, he'll, he'll save both. He'll save the people of Sodom and Amorah, but he won't, he won't stand up for his own son. So he, it's a role, it's thinking like we should, uh, this is, is this the model that we should follow, or is the Torah teaching us? This is maybe a way that we shouldn't act, and maybe because when we're coming to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we're we're doing this reevaluation of our lives on, on every year, and we're looking at this at this story and saying ways we shouldn't act. You know, uh, relations with family comes first, and sometimes uh, this is not the way that we should be doing it. That's one possibility. Dan, ask this question about what you just said. Is that shot or drash? Shot means the, what, what the Bible actually says. Drash means our, our interpretation we're imposing on it. When you say that this is... I'm actually adding my own, my, my own drash here. I don't think it's... It's, it's not the shot. I don't think the, and it's, you know, it's a very yeah. modern drash. It's beautiful, Dan. I mean, wow, thank you. <laughs> but but I, I, it's a very modern drash. I'm reading a book right now to my sons at bedtime uh, called Ender's Shadow. And... It is sort of the retelling of a story that had already been told before, and it focuses on a different character. And this character had grown up on these really brutal streets and had experienced deep hunger. And so when he goes to the same place as the other story happens, where there are all these other kids who have experienced a life of plenty, they don't understand. He just made a remark last night in the piece that we read, I'm on the that it was a spaceship, but I'm on the spaceship with these kids. They have no idea. They have never experienced a moment of hunger before this. They just don't get it. They don't get my context. And I feel in this room often, but especially today, like we're those kids who never experienced a moment of hunger. We didn't experience the trauma that Sarah went through here in this room. We didn't experience the struggle and and the strife that that so much defines this story, we, we have, you know, thank God, not, it's not, I, I, I think, I don't know, I, if so I don't notice about your stories, but experience, you know, someone in our, our family being wounded and, and injured or, or seeing um, in, in a just a powerful, profound way from outside, uh, I feel like we, we ought to take with a grain of sand our judgment and I think that's actually part of our Rosh Hashanah tale, that, you know, our ancestors experienced Sarah's story in a very different way than we experienced Sarah's story. I mean, she stood up. She was there just as, I think, that moment, right, in American history was experienced differently at the time that it happened. I, Rashad, I just could not disagree with you more. If you do that, if you say suspend judgment, because you weren't there. Suspend judgment because you don't know their world. That argument proves way too much. First of all, it makes them irrelevant to our lives. Because if I can't judge them, then I can't learn from them. But second, oh, the apolog- the, but that second, the apologetics, you could say of, uh, of an antebellum slave owner, well, you just don't get it. You just don't understand what was so beautiful about the Confederacy. You just don't get it. You just don't get how beautiful it was the family, the community, the connection. 
that we had. But I'm, I'm not asking you to see and how beautiful it was. So you, I'm, I'm I, asking I, you, you to, to see that other things, things might have motivated We her. have to be able to bring our moral sensibility in 2021 to mid-19th century America and to ancient Torah texts. Otherwise, why bother? I but then we, we, what we do when we do that is we lose some powerful, authentic Torah that comes in every generation that speaks. And I think the Torah that Eliza was bringing up was really powerful Torah that sometimes when you see something that is beyond the bounds, you step up, you, you protect, you become a protector. And Sarah, for many generations, was a symbol, a role model of a protector in this moment. And I also think there's a way to sort of combine both of these viewpoints. One of the things that often happens for survivors of sexual trauma, which, by the way, the rabbis read the interaction between the two boys as sexual trauma. So this is not just a random thing I'm bringing. This is a traditional read. One of the things that often happens is someone will say, oh, he didn't mean it. Oh, oh, she didn't, she didn't mean that. Oh, they were just, they were just messing around. They were, they were just being silly. And I think one of the things, if you want to look at shock, I think that language, mitzahek, is a really intentional language that, that our text gives us the, oh, oh, it wasn't anything. It was just two boys playing. And then if you read her reaction as just crazy, I, I tend to read it as like an authentic, she's reacting. And we, on Yom Hadin, have to think about how we exercise our judgment and how we, how we decide and when are we safe. One last comment on Sarah, and I want to move to, to Abraham. But I love you, but I find that analysis so deeply offensive. Deeply offensive. Um, I find smearing Ishmael with pedophilia or sex abuse as a, as a young baby is deeply, deeply hateful. It's an odious read. And it's particularly odious because it's unsupported. If Ishmael was abusing sexually Isaac, baby Isaac, then Sarah might have said, cast out this pervert, cast out this pedophile, cast out this baby abuser. She doesn't, doesn't speak in the language of sex or dignity. She speaks in the language of money, 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 money. She'll not share in the inheritance. So I find that entire rabbi trope, the rabbinic tradition, on its very worst day. But, but it doesn't have to be that. And like, you don't have to go there because you can go simply into a bullying uh, uh, kind of a stance and you could imagine the kind of behavior that happens often with brothers where the younger brother is, right. uh, is subject to an older brother's physical violence, yeah. in which case, you know, the sense of, uh, of trying to protect my child right. on, on the playground and make right. sure that, that my child has the ability to grow becomes something that I think as the modern parent, right. at least, everybody can, can relate to. It's not so out of bounds, right? You actually, we have the lived experience of this in our lives. And to Dan's point, but we have to struggle with, do you be like Sarah, right? If, if some kid Not is trying to beat up your kid on the playground or says right. bad things about your kids, you hate that kid. In fact, you hate their family, right? You want, you want justice and vengeance. And, right. and the question is, like, we have to struggle with that instinct within all of us. Last word on Sarah, my friend. I was just going to say there's also an element here. We're talking about financial resources. How do they come by these financial resources? by Sarah's own trauma and suffering. So I think there's also an element here of, like, I went through this in order to enable us. Like, you don't, you don't get that. Like, you do not get to have part of my struggle. You don't get to have my suffering was for a purpose. It's blood money. Yeah. Okay. That, I like that. Okay. Thank now, you I want to – okay, Michelle, I want to address this to you since you are the mother of two sons, uh, Eli and Benton. 
this is Abraham's UN moment. Uh, they arrived at the place of which God had told him. Abraham built an altar there. He laid out the wood. He bound his son Isaac. He laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to slay his son. He takes the knife to slaughter his son. Kind of a UN moment. What do you, as a mother of Eli and Benjamin, do with that? Right, so as a mother, right, I very much resonate with Sarah in the rabbinic midrash that Sarah dies of a broken heart immediately after this. She can't believe that her husband would do such a thing. I mean, how? And even though Isaac survived, and even though the story turns like the, the trauma that he will carry forth from that moment is too much for her to bear, and as a mother, I feel that. Right. And I, I also want to say one of the more helpful midrashim about this that I've ever encountered in my life is a modern midrash by Rabbi Dan Gordis, who points out that actually Abraham is not some moment back you know, thousands of years ago that we learn about we don't do child sacrifice from, but rather he's where we learn that we do sometimes do child sacrifice, and he connects that to Israel and having to send his son off to serve in the Israeli army. And when we think about, you know, people all over the globe who say to their children, yes, go serve. I mean, we have a member of our community just now who just dropped her daughter off, their daughter off, at, um, in Virginia to go and start to serve in the American Armed Services. And we look at that and we say, wow, you know, that's heroic. You're willing to sacrifice yourself for a greater goal. And Rabbi Danny Gordas points out that Abraham is the model of that, of a parent who's able to say there are certain values that I'm, I'm willing to risk my child for. Mm. I want to ask you the same question I asked Dan. It's obviously incredibly powerful, but is that shot or drush? <laughs> right. Look, obviously, the shot is that Abraham is literally with a knife in his hand, and right. and the rabbis for many generations say the point of that story is to teach us that we don't do child sacrifice. Right. I, I think though, Danny's drush of this is so helpfully generative right. to think through the ways in which we. Kind of, none of us can escape that knife, and that there are moments in a parent's life where you have to step back and say, um, I believe in something, or my child believes in something, and I'm going to be proud of the belief that they have and that we have, and in the service of something greater. I, I mean, I pray every day for a world in which we won't have to have our children do that, um, but we don't live in that world. And until we live in that world, we're all descendants of Abraham. Mm. So I want to just bring us to a close, the Colin Powell piece, Abraham's Youth Prayer piece, by asking us, and, and, and the earlier observation, Aliza, that you, that you had shared, which is that you know, most folks who live and die in our community and are laid to rest don't have this drama. They don't have this drama. They don't have complicated first paragraphs. They have fears that are talking to um, so I want to bring us to a close by asking you, is it um, a helpful move 
to um, first a, 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 a slow question, a, a simpler question. Do you guys regularly read obituaries? And if so, like everybody else, is that part of your daily newspaper practice uh, that you read obituaries? And if so, why? What What do you do that for? What do you get out of it? I, I don't. You don't. Sermons. <laughs> Sermons. <laughs> <laughs> no, but also I, I really like obituaries. I like obituaries and I like wedding stories. I like stories about people and real people. Um, and I think that the way people's lives are summarized is very is very interesting and evocative. Um, and sometimes you you find incredible incredible stories and incredible people that you wouldn't otherwise encounter, um, except because they have passed away and they are now being remembered. So the same author of the book that I was reading to my boys last night, Orson Scott Card, wrote a book called Speaker for the Dead, all about how we remember the people and how powerful it is to tell the story both of, of people who you understood and also people who you didn't understand. And, and I think with regard to your, you, you know, your obituary question here, all of us have a task to try to dig deeply when we're telling somebody else's story to capture the fullness of, of who they are without judgment. Mm. Okay. Um, yes, you read eulogies? I read, I read, eulogies. I read obituaries every day. It's part of my daily encounter with the world. I guess here's another question I have for you. Do you guys live your lives with an acute, astute, constant awareness of your own mortality? That like you hear that tick, 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 tick in the background, and that that's tolling for you. And is that and is to do you or not? And is that a healthy practice or not? I don't. And I think the reason for that is, in some sense, denial because we all know we're mortal and that we have to really should be facing this all the time. And as you know, and as we get, especially you know, you and I, well, as I get older. Um, you know, I, I probably should be paying more attention to that kind of thing. But I think also there's a sense of, like, um, I've been occasionally thinking about, do I care about what my legacy is? And I've come to the conclusion that in a certain way I don't, because if I, if I did that, then I, would be, um, I wouldn't be authentic to who I am. I just want to live, live my life as the person who I am and not so that other people will see me in a certain way. Um, look, I, I think there are two separate questions, right? One is, do I want to live the best life that I can so so that I'm proud of the life that I have lived? And the other is, do I want to live in a way that I can be certain that I can control what other people say about me? And I think those are different choices. They're not the same. So uh, in terms of do you... Do you care now what the obituary of Michelle Robertson will read? Of course. I mean, I, you do. Of okay, course so I care. Okay. And then if you care, what what impact? <laughs> she loved Torah. She, loved, loved, she loved all the rabbis. She, she, she loved every Torah Every character. Every act. <laughs> justifying the mabul, she said God had his reason. Look, I mean, of course, of course. I care, but I'm I'm also mindful that that's something I can't actually control. That's one but, of those things right. that has to be put into um, into a place of 
I, I think, like Dan said, I'm going to live the, the best way I can. I'm going to do tshuva when I have things to do tshuva for. And I'm, I'm going to hope that it's good enough. I'm going to hope that even if I get a eulogy like Colin Powell's that I didn't want, that there will be another eulogy out there that heard my pain about the moment and that amplifies and speaks to that and, and speaks my truth even when it was flawed at times. I hope not too flawed. So I definitely think about it often. Um, and I think there's also an interesting thing. We're reading the, the first line of the obituary. But I think what actually matters more is, like, five years after you're gone, ten years after you're gone, fifteen years after you're gone, like, do your loved ones remember you? Do you, they still think about you? Are you still part of conversations? Um, and in what way have you shaped the world? That's not just a piece in the newspaper that people read, that, and, or, you know, a speech that's given at a funeral. So um, I think about that a lot, and I think about a lot, like, we go to a lot of funerals where we're there in a lot of moments and it's it's impossible to not um, maybe not impossible but it's it's easy to, to think about what does that look like for me what does that look like for my family and um, what I want it to look like so I'll just say I think the question of what is my story what's the trajectory what's the narrative arc of my life um, is a question that I think about all the time because I think it's so easy to screw up the trajectory of your life. It's just so fundamental and fundamentally human and easy to screw up the trajectory of your life. Um, and so I think it's really worth thinking about it, um, you know, every day so that you don't do it. Uh, now, in the case of Colin Powell, um, from and what I've read about it, uh, he really did this as an act of duty and service. He's a military guy. He believes in the chain of command. His commander-in-chief was the President of the United States. He tried his best to make the case. He got outruled. And so I think, Michelle, your read of, of analogizing Colin Powell in that moment to Abraham in Genesis 21 is very fair. Abraham didn't really want to do it, but Commander-in-Chief God told him to do it. I think it's legit that Colin Powell didn't really want to do it, but his Commander-in-Chief, George W. Bush, told him to do it, so he did it. Um, that's exceptional kind of thing that most of us don't have to deal with. But um, it does feel to me like a healthy practice when we live our lives and things that we can control to really be mindful of what will I do today affect my big story. Um, and, and being aware of that, I think, tends to help us make better choices and live with fewer regrets. And making better choices and living with fewer regrets is always good. The other thing that I will say to me that's most haunting about Abraham and Sarah, and I've said this, at, and, and you know this because we've done a thousand funerals together, but to me, for me, the gold standard of a life well lived is to the people who know you the best, love you the most. It's not the fans, and it's not the people who read about you. It's the people who wake up next to you. It's the people who wake up in the same house with you. It's the people who know you the best, and they love you the most. And it's always been very troubling to me that our patriarchs and matriarchs flunk that test pretty dismally. Um, and I hope we can do better. So on that score, Elisa, you got a song for us. <laughs>
I forgot that was part of the deal. <laughs> this is every week. You don't have socks either. Yeah. Socks. <laughs> socks or a sock. Um, there you go. Maybe a song <laughs> in uh, in celebration of this beautiful bar mitzvah that we're all about to celebrate. We can offer our beloved colleague Elias and his family a cinnamon tovu mazel tovu mazel tovu cinnamon tovu cinnamon tovu mazel tovu mazel tovu cinnamon tovu cinnamon tovu mazel tovu mazel tovu Mazel Tov, David, and family. Shabbat Shalom.